0: This episode of The Partially Examined Life is brought to you by Harry's. If you want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to harrys.com and get $5 off your first purchase by entering the code P-E-L when you check out. That's H A R R Y S.com. You're listening
1: to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 97 is something like, which takes priority, justice or the good? And we will be discussing the book, Liberalism and the Limits of Justice by Michael J. Sandel from 1982. You can join the discussion, get a link to the text and lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Lisenweyer speaking justly from Madison, Wisconsin.
2: This is Seth Paskin, deontologically being himself in Austin, Texas. This
0: is Wes Alwan, just in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. <sighs> so, some of us possess our attributes and some of us are
1: our attributes. <laughs> what about the ground rules? Do those inhere in the discussion or are they applied externally to the discussion? Are they things the discussion possesses or are they inherent properties? They're contingencies of the moral community. The first one of those is try not to assume that our audience has read what we're talking about. God, we've already failed that completely.
2: <laughs>
1: you won't get the jokes unless you've just, you got to listen on, then go back to the beginning.
2: No, they will get the jokes. Eventually it's a slow burn, uh,
1: or has any other background in philosophy. Number two, don't make arguments that hinge on something other than what we've agreed to read. Don't say, you'd know what I was talking about. If you'd only read the banner ad Pythia, the Oracle at Delphi helped me lose 20 pounds in a month. That would have been funnier last time. Number three will be rigorous and exact. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the slow burn. Reverse burn. They will <laughs> laugh at it previously. We will be rigorous and exact in all that we say, unless doing otherwise would be potentially more exhilarating for us or entertaining for the audience. I think putting something that attaches it to our own personal feelings about it is perhaps better than promising anything to the audience that it actually will be more entertaining. If it feels good, say it, man. Personally, I just want to recite a mantra, just, o- om, just over and over and over again. And I think that that will uh, qualify on the new, the new third rule here. I don't think that will
3: help constituate our community.
1: I just did it for an hour and a half, and I edited it all out. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know. Maybe I did it. I don't think we can even talk about our topic this time without talking about what our topic is going to be next time. Because next time, we're going to have Michael Shea Sandel, the man, on with us. I'm very excited. Talking primarily about his new book, What Money Can't Buy the Moral Limits of Markets. But also, when I told him that we were going to be covering this one, Liberalism and the Limits of Justice, from way back in 1982, the thing that put him on the map, he said he'd be happy to address the philosophical connections between the two. They're clearly philosophically connected.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he's been beating this dead horse for (laughs) 20 years now.
2: (laughs) Dead horse? He found, a, he found dead a shtick horse. and he... Come, on. Come Wes, I think you're being uncharitable. It is a drum. Uh, it is not a dead horse. It's a dead drum.
0: <laughs> I, I'm going to admit that I, I have a very, very low opinion of this book. But really? We'll, we'll get to my criticisms at the end of the... Yeah. In fact, it made me furious. Really? What? Wow.
2: Yeah. Oh, wow. All right. Well, this is shaping up to be an interesting conversation. It made me furious because it's such a misrepresentation
0: of Kant and Rawls and liberalism.
2: One of the reasons I'm excited to talk about him is because I also sat
1: through his whole justice lectures that people can see on iTunes U, these Harvard. He gives them to a, just a huge group of students, and he's just a masterful speaker and deals with wacky student comments in an exemplary way. He never says, um, he has no verbal flaws in either his memorized or seemingly spontaneous shtick. So that alone. And he goes through Rawls a lot, which is what this book is mostly about, and Nozick and Mill and Aristotle, and not in a historical pattern, but just in a way that is natural when considering
3: just really what our intuitions about justice might be. He has a book called Justice. It's based on those lectures. Yes, yeah, yes. it reads very much like the Morality and Markets book. It's good in the same way. Though so I'll tell mm-hmm. you, Mark, you're making a wrong presumption if you assume that the shtick of his fantastic lectures is unrehearsed. The fact is he's been rehearsing it for 25 years. That's not the only reason why he's very good at it, but that's one of the reasons why it's so exceptionally polished. It's had the benefit of refinement.
1: So when a student says something surprising and spontaneous... It's not... Su- actually, he can just check back into
3: his database yeah. of previous responses and utter the ones... Yes. That, that happens after, like, the third time you've taught a class, is that you have all those. <laughs> after the third time, there aren't any surprising
2: students. Not even at Harvard?
3: Not even at Harvard. Wow. Ah. Well, maybe
1: they edit it so that all the really stupid comments are removed. But he's, he seems to positively move the discussion forward, no matter oh, what sure. the, the crazy angle
3: of the student comment i was not denying that he is very very good at i was just saying that the performance of a fine lecture like that is not an unrehearsed event
1: so that's where he is now he's made his legacy writing and the what money can't buy is very much like the justice book aimed at a general audience aimed at really a non-philosophical audience but this book this was the one it was so was this actually his phd thesis or something
3: It says he was an associate professor on the back of the book, so he had tenure when the book was published. Okay.
1: For the most part, it reads like a secondary source on Rawls. So folks might want to listen to that episode that we did a little while back before tackling this one. And he gets around to his positive point, his alternative to Rawls, very gradually, right? So it's the limits of justice. In past discussions we've had around here, the question is, what is justice? And of course, justice is going to end up at a social level being the right thing to do, right? And an individual level, who knows what was interesting and innovative about Rawls was that he actually took the social level as primary, that he thought that was the important one to work out. And in fact, one of the criticisms that Sandel is going to keep on him is that he really doesn't think enough through what morality would mean in an individual level. And that ultimately undermines his case for The primacy of justice as the thing that a society should be aiming for. That almost sounds like it's a definitional claim, right? Of course, the best society is
0: the just society. Let's say what the primacy of justice means. Go ahead. This is the claim that the right is prior to the good. One way of understanding that is just we all have certain fundamental rights that can't be overridden by the majority. So... Even if it makes the majority happiest to have, let's say, a state that endorses Christianity, we might think that there are fundamental rights, for instance, to be able to practice whatever religion that we want, and therefore the majority is overruled on that. So that's a sense in which right is prior to the good. The good in that sense is just, I might think personally that Christianity is the greatest good or or some really important end in my life. But then the question is what we do at the level of the state or society, Mm -hmm. whether the society is going to embody that end or whether society is going to be open to pluralism, to many different conceptions of the good and many different ends. So that's one way of understanding it. Sandel right, makes a distinction between that more general way and then the second way, which is the idea that justice can be derived independently of the good, doesn't have to be grounded in the good, and in fact puts certain constraints on what the good is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and rights are ends in themselves, and they're prior to all other ends. And so, this is what he calls deontological liberalism, and that's something he associates with Kant and Rawls, and that's the thing he opposes. We'll talk about what the deontological grounds are in a second. But obviously rights can be grounded in other ways. So for instance, utilitarians have long tried to ground the concept of right and the concept of utility or the greatest happiness of the greatest number. So Mill, for instance, was a liberal and rights were very important to him, but that doesn't mean he was a Kantian or a deontological liberal.
1: Right. So Sandel distinguishes between ethical conflicts between the right and the good and meta-ethical conflicts. The ones that we're used to considering are the moral ones, where we consider, would it be okay if a society butchered one person if that would benefit many more? And you might say that utilitarianism, at least on some versions of the calculation, would say yes. And that's an objection to utilitarianism. This is one that Rawls and everybody else makes. So in that case, you'd say just on the grounds of our ethical intuitions, there's something wrong with a consequentialist viewpoint. Right? Utilitarianism being a specific form of consequentialism. But he wants to distinguish that, Sandel does, from objections to the source of the justification. So, not just that utilitarianism or any kind of consequentialism will lead to some non intuitive ethical results, but that they are not grounded properly. So, deontological liberalism, that it's supposed to get at what is the ultimate foundation. Of all the various ethical claims. And the way that Sandel wants to twist this is to say that there's always some kind of metaphysical picture, specifically a picture of what is the self that is lurking behind any of these given derivations of the primacy of justice or any other sort of right. And so there's a mistake going on, according to the deontological liberal if you think that you can derive ultimately the concept of right from anything else so from a self that has a certain nature and certain ends so that's a teleological notion of the self that's the actually the view that sandel is going to end up advocating but he doesn't get around to telling us that for quite a long time.
0: And he never goes into detail about what that means. <laughs> right. He doesn't tell us, for instance, if he does oppose liberalism and he thinks that a society should endorse one conception of the good over the other. He doesn't tell us which conception that is. I don't think he doesn't have to do that, Wes. <laughs> I think he does have to do that. I think if you're going to argue that liberalism, which is basically just saying we ought to be pluralist and accept various forms of the good within one society, if you can argue that's a flawed conception of society then you do have to make a choice about which conception of the good a society embodies anyway i'm breaking my own rule we ought to work up to that discussion yeah well let's get to my criticisms later
1: well you're forcing me to clarify the explanatory point i was trying to make this is still a summary of Sandel's view about the self that you are saying that he isn't giving you enough information on the actual ethical view, right? Which type of good should rule. But I think the whole point of this book is not to say anything about ethics, but entirely about meta ethics, about the relation of ethical commandments to some metaphysical state in particular, what is the most plausible model of a self? And Mm. he thinks that the model of a self that involves Us being things prior to choosing things. So, for instance, I am an American. I am a son. I am a member of the community of Madison. I am all these other things. I don't just choose all those things and they exert some sort of moral force on me. And so ultimately, whatever the ethics is going to be, it has to be somehow derived from or take into account the fact that we are people who are selves of that sort, not any particular sort, but just that we are selves of a sort. Whereas he says, Rawls' view, the view of deontological liberalism, is that we are nothing but a self who has interests, not who is anything in particular, but who is interested in certain things.
0: Let's get to what Sandel thinks that deontological version of the self is.
3: This cashes out for the self, in Sandel's view, as being an embedded entity— we come at our own being through self-discovery. And his big criticism of the deontological position the understanding of the self is that it does not allow for the fact that we are beings who can self-reflect. He thinks it's the radical nature of the version of freedom involved is not sustainable. And in the end, he's going to also say that the account that Rawls and by association Kant gives is self-inconsistent.
0: So let's look at what that means, a deontological version of the self, which Sandel calls a version of the self that's not encumbered, which means it's not encumbered by specific ends, by specific conceptions of the good. So for Kant, one way to think about this very minimalistic conception of the self is that it's just this bare subject of experiences that accounts for the unity of experiences over time, something we also saw with Locke. And this we call the transcendental subject. And it's called transcendental, by the way, not because we necessarily have to posit some metaphysical soul or entity or noumena behind it. It just means that there's no object of experience that I can identify as a unifier. I just have this succession of experiences over time. I know they're unified and I posit some unifying function. And that's what we call the transcendental ego or the transcendental subject. And the moral importance of that is for Kant, your conception of the right or what's morally right comes from the autonomy of this ego. And people can go back to our Kant episode, but a very a one line explanation of how Kant derives morality from just the autonomy of the ego is that Kant just thinks that the condition for the possibility of morality, it's this this is what he calls a transcendental argument, where he takes some assumption, you know, the existence of morality and then derives something from it. The condition of the possibility of morality is the ability to make free choices and the fact that there can be an autonomous ego making those choices. And morality just falls out of the fact that in order to be able to make those choices, I can't undermine the autonomy of other egos. I undermine my own autonomy if I undermine other people's autonomy. So you get this kind of very abstract... Derivation of the golden rule in a way. In a con episode, we talked about maxims and universalizing and this and that, but really it's just a way that you get this concept of morality out of this bare idea of an autonomous subject.
2: I think we need to make that thread a little thicker, tie that together a little more, Wes. So this is a very strange book. Once you realize that he's turned it into a treatise about the self and the constitution of the self when you thought you were having a conversation about justice and morality <laughs> is very strange, but he has a good reason for doing that, that I don't think we've clearly articulated for the listeners just yet. And I'm not a hundred percent sure I'll be able to well, do I, it clearly. I, <laughs> okay. Do you think you just, thought I thought
0: to, I tried to do that with Kant and was that unclear?
2: Well, let me ask the question then how in in the position of this being a criticism of Rawls' notion of the original position and distributive justice, does Sandel think it's important to focus on this Kantian notion of the deontological self?
3: Well, I think that he does that because he considers Rawls a kind of kindler, gentler Kant, a more modern. Yeah, Kant. the more modern Kant that is. Kant unencumbered by the metaphysical presuppositions of the transcendental subject. So, he starts with that to set the groundwork, and then he goes on into Rawls because he's basically going to say, well, Kant is going to fall to these criticisms altogether. In fact, Rawls could do that for me, essentially. And Rawls comes in and rearticulates justice along a Kantian line, but not using the metaphysics of the transcendental subject, using the original position and mutual disinterest and those different structures in his theory in order to ground the liberal theory of justice. And that's why he goes after Rawls, essentially because Rawls is the harder target in this respect from his point of view.
1: Right. And I want to respond because I can already imagine Wes wincing. As Wes just said, it seems like it's a mistaken interpretation of Kant to actually say that the deontological subject is a metaphysical claim. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> but still, if you listen back to our Kant episode, the whole terminology is very difficult in talking about transcendental anythings. And so, even if it's not a metaphysical one, You can see why somebody in the modern age, someone who wants to give something that's empirically respectable, that is, sounds more like something derived from everyday experience, would rather do something that is at least hypothetically connected with our actual empirical intuitions, right? And so the problem that Sandel sees here is that if you have an idea of a self or of good as too tied in with the empirical, then you make the mistake that and everybody else has pointed out of confusing the thing you're analyzing with the tools that you're analyzing it with. So in other words, if you say, well, what the good is, is what society thinks right now, right. but then, you know, so, what society yeah. thinks right now is the standard that you're using to judge that. So there's something screwed up about that. So there has to be some yeah. other way, some more abstract way of getting at the good, but the way that Kant wants to do it from reason itself I don't want to rehearse the whole argument that we had on that episode, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, anyway, the idea that just reason itself, no matter how much you think about it, is going to reveal rightness in the way that Kant says. So there's a whole history of objections to Kant. In
0: right. But also, it's not a it's not just a weak argument. It's actually a very insightful...
1: And Rawls, we brought up in the Kant episode as a modern Kantian, <laughs> but in this respect... He would rather have, so Rawls, again, makes that abstraction from the way we actually think right now. So don't think about what you consider just right now or what your society considers just right now, but what you would pick as the fundamental rules for society, as constraints on what society could do if you were in this original position. If you didn't know that you were going to be rich or poor, smart or dumb, what religion you were going to be, what interests in particular you had, if you just knew a very little bit about yourself, that you you knew you would have some kind of interests, and that of course you'd want to do the things that you were interested in, that you'd want to promote the things you're interested in. Just knowing that much, and knowing everybody else was in that position, and you all had to then agree on a structure of society, well that's the abstraction that Rawls makes for figuring out the basic rules. And so Sandel thinks that this is a happy medium between the straight empiricist, well, let's just look at what people actually want, and then we'll try to generalize from that, and that'll be morality, and the rationalist Kant of somehow looking at reason itself, which just really doesn't seem to yield any direction in
2: particular for human beings. I would disagree with your characterization that Sandel thinks it's a happy medium, I think what Sandel thinks is that this is Rawls' attempt to find some kind of a middle ground between the empiricists. And the reason why is on the empiricist side of the table, if you go the Humean route and you look at the self the way the empiricist construction of the self, you have a fully situated self and you don't get that kind of self that stands prior to to the utilitarian concerns of whatever community that they're situated in.
0: Well, not just that. You don't get a self. You can't account for any constancy of self underneath change, right? As desires change, as certain qualities about me change. So you get that's radically situated in the sense that there is no self if I'm simply reducible to all my properties. I am my desire. That's what the radically situated self
2: is. Of course, yeah. There's those problems as well. But for the purposes of talking about justice and the good, the issue on the other side of the fence is that Rawls thinks, and I think Sandel is interpreting Rawls' thinking, that whether he's interpreting Kant correctly or incorrectly, the point is, is that transcendence is somehow almost too empty to yield even enough to come up with this conception of justice, and that Rawls thinks the original position is a way to maintain the deontological self, but give enough... Content, Let's say to the notion of self such that you can derive this idea of justice. Now, whether Rawls or Sandel's reading of Rawls is right about whether Kantian transcendence has enough content to yield a conception of justice such that Rawls wants, that's what's at stake here. Right. Well, I think we can leave
0: aside the question of accuracy about God. Yes,
2: it's going to be too. That's what I'm trying to do. Yes. Yeah,
0: We can leave that aside. But I think, yeah, what Sandel is claiming is that Rawls is trying to get this happy median between this transcendent self as a grounds for justice and then this radically situated self. So what you have in the middle is kind of the minimalist self. It's a This kind of generalized minimum theory of desire. It doesn't say anything specifically about human motivations, but it assumes we all want wealth and other things that could be a means to other very specific ends. But it doesn't tell us that we have these specific ends, like that we're Christian or that we're into baseball or or whatever. Or, Or
1: even just saying we want wealth that, you know, it means we want whatever it is we consider wealth. We want something. We have some interests. And we want them fulfilled.
0: Well, no, no, not just whatever, you know, wealth, just in the sense that, you know, we have to meet our basic needs. So that is part of what Rawls calls his thin theory of the good. So it's not like it's not a theory of the good. It's a minimalistic theory of the good. It's as minimum as we can get by with. And the reason why we're postulating this minimal theory of the good, well, you know, on the one hand, Sandel is going to claim that, you know, it's coming from a certain theory of the self, and we'll get to that. But on the other hand, the most glaring reason is just plurality. Is just that human beings have different ends. And when we're getting together to decide on the kind of society we want to have, we want to avoid the problem of conflict. So if we legislate one set of ends, we make everyone else miserable. And so that's why we go towards the minimum and say everyone can have their own specific ends within the framework, but we're not going to come down on the side of any one particular end. And in the original position, that's just about minimizing risk because I don't know whether mm-hmm. i'm going to be a christian so i know i'm not going to bank you know and if i did know i was going to be a christian in the middle in the original position right i'd make an entirely different choice but if i don't know that i can't say i want a christian state and so on and so forth
1: for rawls it seems like that appeal to intuition that appeal to hypothetical intuition imagine you're in the original position what intuitions would you come up with oh i wouldn't want to be a risk chooser i would have there's something irreducible about that that that's kind of That's one of the things that is supposed to be appealing, that it's like Descartes. Just reflect on your intuitions here. But I think Sandel wants to say that there's nothing irreducible about that, that whenever you make a claim that, oh, in the original position, I would choose such and such, you're actually also making a claim about what kind of being you are. You're not purely reflecting on your intuition. Or maybe, you know, it's a matter of having an intuition involves asserting implicitly some theory
0: of the self. Rawls' explanation... Is not that he has a certain theory of the self, right? We Mm-mm, should be very clear right. about that. Sandel is going to attribute that to him. Rawls' explanation is that there are certain circumstances of justice, and this idea comes from Hume, that are driving our decisions about the principles of justice in the original position. And those conditions are the fact of scarcity. You know, there's going to be limited resources, and people with less will be envious of people with more, and blah, blah, blah. And then there's the fact that people have different interests and ends. So you could call that plurality. Those are what's called the conditions of justice. And Sandel's going to criticize that foundation because he believes that Rawls as a Kantian or a deontologist will need something that's not so empirical and contingent. And he thinks it is contingent in the sense of Sandel can imagine, well, look at other circumstances like families or tribes or neighborhoods or ethnic identities where there's less discord of values, where people's ends more happily
3: coincide. Sandel, in arguing against the primacy of justice, he's going to say that justice ends up being not just one value among many, but the value that trumps all values. And that is an indication of the kind of criticism that you pointed out, Wes, that there are other kinds of embedded structures. And this is the avenue in which Sandel's is going to argue that Rawls' account and even Kant's account would be inconsistent in that by having justice be the primary value they're not succeeding in having a unencumbered set of values right and that once you've had one value trump all others then it becomes a question of well are there other ways to organize a society that doesn't necessarily always value justice as the primary value then that gets us to the question of in Sandel's account what's the underlying limit that's there it has to do with an account of the self in that it implies structure of the self that is the root of his criticism
0: just to be clear about that so he's you know again so sandel is going to claim that that's the only way that rawls can ground his account and he's going to claim that because he doesn't think this whole circumstances of justice postulation works out for rawls because it's empirical and we need something that's non-empirical to found deontology and then there's also the deontologist comes back and says well Look, we're just trying to make very, very minimum sorts of assumptions. And so it's a very conservative or weak assumption to say that people are going to have different interests, and a very strong one to say benevolence is going to reign and people are going to have shared values and so on and so forth. So, in other words, the deontologist or the Rawlsian would come back and say, Well, we're just trying to think about the worst case scenario in which there's conflict, in which there's scarcity, and account for that. And Sandel's going to say, well, these aren't really very weak assumptions. He doesn't, as far as I'm concerned, justify that, but that's his view. That Well,
1: he says it's question begging. That's all that, that means. That if you think that, you know, oh, I'm just going to assume that people don't have any fellow feeling, because assuming that they have fellow feeling is a stronger assumption. Well, Why are you saying one of them is stronger than another?
0: You're not assuming they don't have fellow feeling. You know people are going to have fellow feeling. You know they're going to have communities. For the purposes of setting up a state, you imagine the worst-case scenario because you have to account for that. And it's obviously absurd to assume that society is going to be ruled by benevolence and a complete unity of ends. You have to account for plurality. It's a very, very strong position to say plurality and scarcity are the two things we have to account for. I think it's much harder to get around than Sandel thinks
3: it is. Yeah, but Wes, I think that you are switching all the way over to the other end by saying that Sandel, for instance, would be arguing now for a society ruled by benevolence.
0: He's saying we can't assume that it isn't ruled by benevolence. I'm saying, yes, you can assume that it isn't ruled by benevolence.
1: Let me read the quote. So this is page 45. The requirement that the assumption be weak rather than strong, in other words, the assumption that people won't be benevolent, begs precisely the question we seek to answer, weak or strong with respect to what? We might say an assumption is weak from a conceptual point of view, and therefore be likely to be innocuous or trivial or otherwise unobjectionable, when it depends for its validity on the validity of relatively few related propositions, and where those it does rely on are themselves weak and uncontroversial. An assumption is strong in these terms when, for it to be true, many other things, including controversial things, have also to be true. But surely the assumptions of mutual disinterest and benevolence cannot be distinguished on the grounds that either is weaker or stronger— an assumption in the conceptual sense. Neither relies on a premise which is conceptually more contentious or problematic than the other.
0: And I'm saying, yes, they can be distinguished conceptually.
3: He's not saying that they're not distinguishable. He's saying that they're both equally conceptually problematic. But they're not
0: equally conceptually problematic. When you set up your society, you assume people are going to have a diversity of desires and ends. It is obvious that plurality is the thing that reigns. It's obvious from an empirical point of view. And even if we had no experience of millions of people dying through history because of conflicts over what religion is going to be instituted in a state, even if we had none of that data and someone came to us and said, when we set up our society, should we set it up to assume that everyone's going to agree or set it up to assume the worst case scenario? Not everyone is agreed. When you set up a system, if you don't know which one it's going to be, you set it up to endure the worst case scenario. That's why it's conceptually weaker. It's conceptually weaker to account for all contingencies.
3: Yeah. And it's the all and the every that's the problem in this case, right?
0: Anyway, that's my, you know, that's my objection. I understand you guys might disagree with that, but so I just wanted to register that as we go along. But I think, you know, that's the point where Sandel is now going to say, okay, Rawls fails to ground this in this kind of descriptive idea of weak suppositions that are required in the original position. And so he needs to ground it in a conception of the self. That's very Kantian.
2: Let's maybe
1: explore the alternative, though, to the position you were just arguing Wes, which is, it might not be that we all have the same desires, but if you have a strong notion of human nature, you might say, eh, ultimately everybody wants the same kind of stuff. Particular people get excited about particular things, but... We are much, much more similar than we are different. And so in general, you know, not only as you mentioned are we gonna need the basics in order to live, but even maybe there's we can draw a hierarchy of needs and say even the higher pleasures are gonna be very similar among similarly cultivated people who have all their lower pleasures already fulfilled. So this is is sort
0: of a it's a Mill versus Nietzsche dispute. Yeah, but you sound to me like you're just restating Rawl's position, which is that we want a thin theory of the good. We want to say, what does everyone want? And then let's go from there.
1: But why couldn't you argue that it's actually, the commonalities are actually quite thick, and that it's only a very small... So in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we have all the same hierarchy... But it's only at the top level seeking what
0: self-actualization that that diverges in different ways. You could take a gamble and say, look, I want a more perfect society and I'm going to take the chance that it's just going to crumble because I didn't take into account this possibility of plurality that it's just going to fall apart in conflict.
3: This part of the question is, in part, how the original position is functioning in Rawls' theory and Sandel presents this in the chapter that Mark just quoted from and then he goes on to present his own take on the original position and what its problems are right around page 47 and 48, 49. And this is one of the places where he begins to argue that there is a implied understanding of the self that is at stake in Rawls' account. He wants to start with the notion of reflective equilibrium as the, he says, The notion of reflective equilibrium is the method of justification that governs the conception of the whole. The key is to see the original position as the fulcrum of reflective equilibrium insofar as it can be achieved. The original position is the fulcrum of the justificatory process in that it is the device through which all justification must pass, the place at which all arguments must arrive and from which all must depart. This is why a premise of the original position can be defended or attacked from either of two directions, on the grounds of its plausibility or on the grounds of its fit with our considered convictions about justice.
1: Just to remind folks, so reflective equilibrium is all just about reflection back and forth between principles and intuitions. So we look at all these intuitions we have, and this is most obviously used in moral philosophy, and Rawls, in fact, invented the term, though he was picking obviously on something that was preexistent in philosophical method. But you could even use this for things beyond ethics. But so anyway, for the good, for ethics, you look at, well, murder is bad and this stealing is bad. You look at individual intuitions we have. We try to come up with general principles that capture them. But then once we have these general principles, we might find that we have to revise some of our intuitions. Like In fact, philosophy is not doing anything if it doesn't have that second component to it. But then you might still look back at the intuitions and say, well, no, okay, let's adjust the principles again. And so it's supposed to sort of go back and forth and back and forth. And so Sandel is just relocating this within this particular discussion to say how Rawls is using it with regard to the original position.
0: Yeah, the way it applies to Rawls is that he kind of knows what principles of justice he's trying to derive. He makes no bones about that, right? We want Mm -hmm. some conception of rights and then some conception of distributive justice. Although that could change, that's on the one side of things. On the other side of things are what we call the circumstances of justice and certain intuitions about maybe what happens to be the case about human nature, although human nature may be too specific a ground. And then you work from both directions. So you set up this original position and see what happens, what principles of justice fall out of it. Okay, I get my principles of justice. And I like those, although, you know, if I didn't like them, then I'd have to go back to the drawing board and see what it is in the original position I had screwed up, something like that. So that's the back and forth we're talking about.
1: And Sandel wants to add the extra step that not only are you determining your principles to some extent from looking at individual cases, but you're determining the metaphysical things that have to be the case, right? The view of the self that has to be the case for those principles to make sense. Well, yeah.
0: He's saying that on that descriptive side, he's already knocked down the circumstances of justice and so on and so forth as a grounds, right? So he's saying on that, we need some other grounds. And okay, so here's the self. That's the only grounds left to us.
3: And also that you buy that description of the self. Yep. Independently. Does it make sense intuitively?
0: Yes. Right. They have to be independent of each other. It can't just be completely circular.
1: Right. We've had discussions of the self on other podcasts where you know we haven't had Hume in particular on the self, but we came very close to it in one on Sartre where it's, I'm just a free floating. I, you know, I could say I'm an American or something, but that's kind of just fooling myself. I am not essentially an American. I'm am essentially just a choosing being and that's all I am. So that's the view of the self that Sandel is attributing to Rawls and just says that that is implausible,
3: right? In itself. Well, it's not just implausible. I mean, he does think it's implausible as a factual matter, but he also thinks it's insufficient to do the work that the self needs to Mm -hmm. do to account for justice, even in Rawls' theory. So it's both implausible and inconsistent. So that, I mean, that's the whole strategy of Sandel's argument is that he wants to say that this conception of the self that is revealed at the limit of justice is both not plausible as an authentic self. And even if you wanted to dismiss it as not necessarily being required as authentic self, it is not a sufficient understanding of self to do the work that Rawls' justice needs to do, that it has to be, in fact, stronger than that. And so, those are the twin ways in which he goes at it. Well, he gives a third way right in the introduction of the book by asking
1: you like, you know, don't you think that we should have a freedom of religion and that religious rights should be respected in a way stronger than other sorts of just general preferences? And so this is an appeal again to what he thinks at least some of our intuitions might be, right? So he's reflecting on three levels here. He's re- reacting to the, do the metaphysical things make sense? Does it work in Rawls theory? And does it give the appropriate intuitive ethical outcomes. And he says no on all three grounds. Sandel does.
0: So maybe to back up and just say a little bit more about what this unencumbered self that he's attributing to Kant and Rawls is, you know, with Kant, we already saw it's something like this very bare subject, right? Just this thing that stands behind a succession of experiences. And for Rawls, it was more like this very general conception of the subject. And what Sandel is going to attribute to him is this idea that the self is prior to its ends, which means to say that instead of being as a self, in some sense, constituted by my membership in some group or my nationality or my ethnicity or some other very strong element of my identity, myself is prior to every bit of my identity.
3: That's Sandel's argument?
0: What Sandel is attributing to Rawls and Kant. So this very minimalist conception of the self where the, you know, the alternative that Sandel thinks is better is actually the self is thicker. It is constituted by ends. and Right. So that would make duties actually prior to preferences. If I think part of myself is
1: to be of this family, of this religion, of this nationality, then that would imply some duties that are not just, oh, those are just the things that I happen to favor and that are more elaborate than just the requirements of justice.
0: The other phrase he uses for this minimalistic, unencumbered self is the subject of possession, which is to say our ends are simply these possessions that we can get rid of at will, and that in fact that we will, that we just choose somewhat arbitrarily. Whereas in reality, our self is constituted by ends that are conditioned socially by where we grew up, what family we belong to, what nation we belong to, so on and so forth.
1: Well, that seems an accurate description of Sartre. Do you think it's an actually an accurate description
0: of Rawls? Well, I wanted to wait on my... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not an accurate description of Rawls or Kant, because <laughs> for Kant, there was also the empirical self. In fact, most of the self is the empirical self, this thickly constituted self. And Kant was suggesting you can't base morality and right on the right on that thickly constituted self, it doesn't work. But he wasn't saying that none of our ends are attributable to that self or none of our ends are essential to the empirical self. I'll give a sketch of this and I'll back off and we can go on with more description. I don't want to dominate this with my criticisms, but everything that Sandel says about this thickly constituted self, that's perfectly consistent with Kahn and Rawls. It's just consistent with this empirical self. And when Rawls sets up a state and he says, I'm only going to think of these bare minimum desires. He's not saying that that's the essence of the self. He's just saying that's that's all we can take into account when we set up a state. So in other words, the good of a state or a polis is not the same as the good of an individual. Yes, when you talk about the good of an individual, everything that Sandel says is accurate, but none of it, in my view, is inconsistent with Kant or Rawls.
1: I want to hear what Seth thinks about all this self-stuff.
0: I think, Seth, you are sort of the exemplar of the constituted self, the rooted. (laughs) And I am the, you know, empty transcendental.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, that is true. There's a little passage at the end of the book where Sandel sounds like he almost comes up using terms like rootedness and embeddedness, which, of course, speaks to my sympathy for the popular heideggerian notion right that we're somehow beings that are situated at a very specific period of time he uses the thing saying you're born to a certain parents and a certain gender all those sorts of things but to say that that's how we experience the world i think in itself doesn't constitute a fatal criticism to the idea that there is some kind of transcendental self that persists through time and somehow anchors the self or the identity to say it is to just state of truism about our phenomenal experience of things. I guess I'm drawn in this debate to think more at the level of Rawls's claim that the original position is a hypothetical or a thought experiment to help people get a grip on what their intuitions would be about justice. And to say, okay, is Rawls committed to some notion of the self that's fatal in the way that Sandel brings it? Or would there be a way for Rawls to defend himself saying, look, I wasn't positing a notion of the self here. This wasn't an ontological treatise. It was intended to be a meditation on the origin of justice. I can't say that I have a strong sense one way or the other, but it still strikes me as somewhat odd that this entire book feels like an extended meditation on the subject or the self.
3: Rawls does say something like what you just said, Seth, that he wants to put distance between the original position and any claims about what human beings really are like. It's meant to be a a stand-in, a tool to think through the question of justice. He doesn't think it's going to make an explicit claim, certainly, and seems like he doesn't think there's going
2: to be an implicit claim about the nature of the self. And Sandel just thinks he's wrong about that. You could read Sandel as criticizing Rawls and saying that the original position doesn't succeed in doing what he wants it to do. It's not strictly methodological. That would be one way to read it. The other way would be a stronger claim, which seems to be the claim in the book, which is that Rawls's whole endeavor requires a conception of the self that ultimately collapses in on itself for precisely the reasons that he articulates, namely that... In order to be any kind of deontological liberal, you have to have this disembodied, put transcendental in brackets self that can have desires and wants and all that stuff, but isn't constituted by them. And that he thinks Rawls played fast and loose methodologically and didn't really explore the consequences of what would be required to even take the methodological step that he's talking about to even do that.
0: Okay, so let's take a break here for a moment to talk about our sponsor for this episode, Harry's Razors. This is a startup that's just about a year old, and it's offering an alternative to the overpriced razors men are used to getting from drugstores. So they offer this really high-quality razor with blades that are half the price of competitors like Gillette. And these are blades that are made in this 93-year-old German factory that they purchased. Really high-quality blades. And the razor itself is really well-made and aesthetically pleasing. It's not like the drugstore razor, which looks more like a toy. To get one for yourself, go to harrys.com. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. And use the code P-E-L to get $5 off your first purchase. That's harrys.com, promo code P-E-L. Thanks to Harry's for their support of this episode of The Partially Examined Life. Okay, so let's get back to the conversation. Let's say in more detail why, because we've said what the conception of the self that he's attributing in roles, but we've said he doesn't like it, but we haven't really gone into detail about why he thinks it doesn't work.
1: Well, he spends a lot of time just clarifying what the position is. So for instance, I'm looking at uh, page 133, the unity of the self. Whereas the morality of right corresponds to the bounds of the self and speaks to that which distinguishes us, the morality of the good corresponds to the unity of persons and speaks to that which connects us. On a deontological ethic where the right is prior to the good, that means that what separates us is in some important sense prior to what connects us, epistemologically prior, as well as morally prior. We are distinct individuals first, and then we form relationships and engage in cooperative arrangements with others. Hence the priority of plurality over unity. So the way of putting this just brings to mind our Hegel episode and our many other discussions of the self where we said that maybe one of the problems of the Western tradition of English and American philosophy now of the liberal tradition is this assumption that we are somehow separate beings that have desire, you know, whether we're self-interested egoists or not, still we are fundamentally separate and have to learn to get along and that's the whole picture that's behind social contract theory we are separate individuals that then have to get together and make a contract whereas starting with hegel we get a completely different picture of we are primarily sort of a social mass like a herd of animals (laughs) and it's only when we become no, self reflective. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's only when we become self reflective that we develop individuality. Cultivating individuality is really the grand task of what society should be helping us do, not to help us
2: vicious creatures get along and separate us from each other. That's exactly the point, Mark, is that by tying the notion of justice to adjudicating competing claims and the things that distinguish or differentiate us versus communal claims, the things that bind us. He's essentially saying that if you prioritize the notion of justice, which exists to arrange or order a society of distinct individuals, you are prioritizing this individuation, which metaphysically carries itself out to this transcendental subject. The self
3: that he attributes to Rawls is one in which you're always just choosing between relative intensities of desires, so, you're disembodied self and you're just saying, well, I have some desires that are, I guess, come prior to me. And on page 159, Sandow links this back up with reflection. The reflection involved in assessing the relative intensity of desires looks inward in a sense, but not all the way in. It takes as its objects the contingent wants and desires and preferences of the self, but not the self itself. It does not extend its lights to the self standing behind the wants and desires it surveys. It cannot reach the self qua subjects of desires. Since for all the faculty of self-reflection is limited to weighing the relative intensity of existing wants and desires, the deliberation it entails cannot inquire into the identity of the agent. Who am I, really? Only into the feelings and sentiments of the agent. What do I really feel like or most prefer? Because this sort of deliberation is restricted to assessing the desires of a subject whose identity is given unreflectively in advance, it cannot lead to self-understanding in the strong sense which enables the agent to participate in the constitution of its identity. So Sandel says that Rawls denies our being as selves, and that the only way we can have that being is to think about who we are. So,
0: for example, if I'm trying to figure out, let's say, an important life decision, I don't know whether or not to become a doctor. On one conception, I might think about what I desire in the brutish sense It would just be my near-term desires. But even Sandel admits that Rawls is consistent with reflecting on those desires and longer-term desires. So I might think, well, what do I really want? Mm -hmm. But Sandel wants something even stronger than that. He wants to say, well, what is consistent with my identity, with my character? And what is good given my identity as a member of community X, those kinds of questions.
3: Yeah. And Sandel will bring that home by saying that that's the only way in which we have authentic freedom. This is how Rawls conception of the self isn't sufficient to support the notion of justice. That is, it's not sufficient to support freedom. It's not sufficient to support choice that you can only have real choice in Sandel's argument with reflection that mm-hmm. starts on page 161. That you have agency, the ability to choose, through the ability to reflect. And that reflection is only possible within this constituted self. So, you reflect on what's good for you, what kind of being you are, and there's two things that happen. One is that you have a thicker self out of which to have that capability of reflection. But then the choices are authentic choices that are a reflection of your own agency. And ultimately, it also allows you to become potentially a different person. You, you have a genuine dynamic self. Sandel doesn't talk about this as much, but part of this uh, thicker self that he's pointing to allows for a self that changes over time rather than what I think he takes as Rawls very static understanding of self. That is, it's free, but in a insufficient way.
0: I think it's not static. It's just that when it changes, the changes are sort of arbitrary. In this agency and the role of choice section, he thinks about the Rawlsian subject as he portrays it trying to reflect on, say, first Mm -hmm. order and second order desires. You know, like I was talking about, what do I really want? And he says, well, there's no basis for that kind of reflection because the agent can't draw on the intrinsic worth of the desire because we've barred a more robust conception of the good and the agent can't reflect on the connection of the desire to his or her identity so there's no basis for affirming or not affirming a given desire so reflection simply falls apart there's no standard by which to reflect on our desires it just becomes heeding one desire or another
1: this should sound very familiar as Sandel identifies himself as talking about basically the same thing that Alistair McIntyre is and McIntyre's target was the existentialist was people like Sartre and here is Sandel's objecting to the very same notion of self. Whereas the things you just read off Wes. The existentialist would just say, yeah, so there ultimately is no justification for these, you know, what do you really, really want? Somehow there has to be some metaphysical fact of my an identity of myself that I can then pull out and say, this is the justification for what I really, really want. No, we just, sorry, we don't have that justification. That's just something that as the part of the art of living, we have to develop and figure out Right, and that developing, creating, and finding is one of those, what I've called many times stable ambiguities, (laughs) that we shouldn't have to decide the metaphysical position of whether there's a true self or whether searching for the true self is actually the same as creating the self. The dynamic of living means we don't get to decide
3: that. But Sandel isn't arguing for that kind of self. That's static in pre-existence, yeah. Yeah, the self that he is pointing to isn't that kind of static, ultimate self,
0: either. Well, I think he really is arguing against a Sartrean self. And if this were a polemic against (laughs) Sartre, I would have just pumped my fist in the air through the whole thing. (laughs) But it's the idea that this has anything to do with Kant or Rawls, which so offended me.
2: Let's step back from that and let's attach ourselves to what Mark said about McIntyre. Sandel's not here trying to tear down Rawls because he disagrees with Rawls's ultimate goal. It's not so much that he thinks that Rawls is misguided in wanting to create some kind of a foundation for community injustice. I think what he's saying is trying to do that the way that Rawls does it is a classical liberal move and that it's ultimately doomed to collapse under the weight of its own self-contradiction. That... It makes sense to say, let's focus on the individual. If you want to protect the weakest members of society, if you want to ensure some kind of distributive justice, then you prioritize the individual, the community. You take the classical liberal move against utilitarianism. And what he's saying is, but when you do that, here are all the things that happen when you put justice before the good. And I think he would do exactly what McIntyre would do, which is to say the counter move to the utilitarian conception of the good is not to go deontology, but instead to go virtue.
0: I think Rawls would, and Rawls later did, denied that he had any of these theories that Sandel attributes him and said his position is completely consistent with Sandel's emphasis on community. It's entirely possible to be a virtue ethicist within a liberal society, because you could think that virtue ethics is the best description of morality and the good of the individual and the good of the state are not the same thing. And Rawls is concerned about the good of the state and what the best way to set up a state is, not what the best conception of ends and morality is for an individual. Right. The focus of the book
1: that we read, at least the parts that we read by Rawls, is the state. And Rawls makes some comments in there that, well, that's what you figure out first and then. From there, we can somehow derive or fill in the gaps for individual morality. But really, it's just that he wasn't focused on that. And Sandel really is trying to read into this and attribute this, what I think is a focus in Rawls's text, as an active neglect of legitimate, specifically moral, as opposed to political theorizing.
3: I think another way to view the criticism is that the notion of self that underlies or is implied by Rawls' account is insufficient to support its own claim about justice.
0: We'll give the specifics of that.
3: The other way of articulating that is that the rules of justice that we would have when we make up a society, like, and we have this pluralistic society, that there always will be underlying understandings of good implied in that constitution. And the constitutive forms, if they're absent, then it's not a protection to have a a liberal government. It's not a protection to just ignore those constitutive forms of the good and say, well, everybody's an individual out there running. I'm just going to respect their rights.
0: So what does a liberal government have to do? That's not simply totalitarian or not simply theocracy or not simply most liberals reading this book, right? Their fundamental concern is that these types of ideas lend themselves to totalitarianism. The idea of instituting a Strong conception of the good in the state leads to tyranny. That's what Kant was fundamentally worried about. So what does Sandel give us? How should we set up a state that's consistent with this emphasis on community? Does he want a liberal state or not? He doesn't even tell us in the end.
3: Let me put the question this way. Is it the liberal principles that were the most important factor in the success of the foundation of the American Republic? Or was it at least as much, if not more, the common community principles that were part of that society and the failure of other attempts to have liberal democracy in other societies
0: which communities do you mean the catholics or do you mean the protestants or do you mean this community or that community that's the problem it was a pluralistic society from the beginning do you mean the slaves or the native americans and their values which of the many 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 different communities do you mean
3: well, some of those were explicitly excluded,
0: as you well know, right? So, And the point of the liberal society is that they all have to be accommodated.
3: Uh, but they're not. They weren't in the first place, Wes. Okay, yeah, that's a
0: historical injustice. Yeah. Well,
3: yeah, but but it also means that the inclusion of them all is not the reason for the success of the liberal democracy.
0: <laughs> well, the principles were to include them all, and, and the country gradually moved in that direction. So abolitionism was a significant factor in the history of the country from the very beginning. That was a tension, you know, and the founders thought about that. And many of the founders thought of slavery as unjust, but that's, we're, we're kind of off topic now. I mean, the, the question is, what is the alternative to a liberal society? What is the positive view here? If liberalism has limits, what does that imply for setting up a state? Would he do it any differently than Rawls? He well, does are...
1: There are things that, that Rawls wants to get out of his results. This care for the least fortunate that ultimately Sandel doesn't think that he can get and thinks yep. that say Nozick's criticism of Rawls is actually right on the money. That if you pay attention to the, and I'm not going to try to give an accurate version of Nozick here. This is not the point today, but. You know, that if you really try to give a theory founded on the f- recognition of the fundamental difference between people, and that the state has to be neutral with regard to everybody's different preferences, that you don't come up with the second principle of justice that allows differences difference, between individuals, the different difference principle, principle yeah. right, that allows, you know, some to have more only if that ends up benefiting the least well off. Sandel so wants something that'll better ground that, and even let us... Be a little more overtly utilitarian. You know, utilitarianism has those weights involved, but just allow us to say, we want to care for our citizens. A little more
0: paternalistic, I think, is what Sandel wants to allow. Well, first of all, Rawls allows for plenty of that. (laughs) So I'm I'm confused. The difference principle precisely is a very strong sort of communism way to redistribute to the the least well-off. I mean, short of saying our principle is that we have to eliminate all inequality, you know, the difference principle doesn't do that, but it does it in a way that Rawls thinks is maximally consistent with rights. And Nozick's objection is that it actually violates people's rights and right. that it doesn't treat them as ends in themselves. And this is another misunderstanding of Kant. Kant's principle is not that you have simply have to treat people as ends in themselves. This is something that Sandel says over and over and over again. It's that they can't be treated merely as means to an end. Kant understood that we use people as a means all the time. If I have sex with someone or even have a conversation with them, I'm using them as a means to pleasure. But the idea is that you can't simply use them merely as a means to an end. I have to treat them also as ends in themselves, which means I ask permission to have sex before I have sex, things like that. So this whole idea, Nozick's objection, which Sandel reiterates, is totally bogus, it's completely consistent with deontology to say that we can use people as a means to our ends. And also, I don't think Sandel, so the affirmative action argument, he's criticizing Dworkin, right? Dworkin comes along and, and says... Right, so let's just say where, how this is placed in the book as a piece of the argument. So Dylan brought up, and you just brought up, the idea that Rawls' conception of the self can't do everything we need it to do. And mm-hmm. he, affirmative action is one case where he does that. So he cites Dworkin, who Dworkin's basic idea, and it's one I totally agree with, is that affirmative action doesn't violate anyone's rights. And when something doesn't violate anyone's rights, it's completely legitimate to take utilitarian concerns into account. And what we saw with our Nozick episode is that that's a reductive ad absurdum of ruling out utilitarianism entirely. Nozick shows you how crazy it gets if you don't allow some utilitarianism in. And Rawls thinks he sort of fudged it to allow the same sort of thing. But anyway, so that's the Dworkin argument. And Sandel's going to say, that doesn't work because just because you are not violating someone's rights doesn't mean that their assets can be redistributed at will. Doesn't mean that it belongs to the community. So for instance, Rawls noted that if I'm really intelligent, that doesn't entitle me. I don't deserve to have a better life with more money because I didn't. It's not something I had any control over. I just happened by chance that benefiting from my intelligence. So the Nozickian and the Sandel's argument here will be that well, just because you don't deserve it doesn't mean that you can't possess it in some broader sense. It doesn't mean that society can as an equal to claim to it yeah. as you do. Yeah, this is more. It's a broader conception of entitlement. Entitlement doesn't require desert. In other words, and i think that's totally bogus the general welfare is an entirely l- legitimate consideration and it's entirely legitimate to redistribute wealth and to do all those sorts of things on utilitarian grounds
1: But so doesn't Sandel say that talking about the general welfare involves a subject the general which is ruled out by the deontological
0: after he sounded like a hegelian through the whole book Yeah, and he thinks we need to ground this in some more general subject, right? To say that I can take from you if I'm less well off means that you and I, in some more ontological sense, have to be...
1: That there is an entity, the community or something. Yeah, but there's this entity and therefore
0: we're not radically separate in the first place. And therefore it's not really just me, a separate individual taking from you. Really, we're part of one whole and everything is shared and blah, blah, blah so he thinks it needs to be grounded in that way. And so I think that's what Dylan was referring to. So that's where you get, well, Rawls can't get what he needs out of his radical conception of individualism because it undoes any concern for the general welfare.
1: Right. Here's a quote on uh, 140. If no individual has an antecedent claim to the benefits of his accidentally given assets and endowments, it might seem natural to suppose that the society as a whole therefore does. But as we saw in the discussion of common assets and the difference principle, this is in a chapter we didn't read. This assumption is without warrant. The arbitrariness of an individual's assets argues only against the proposition that the individual owns them or has a privileged claim to their benefits, not in favor of the proposition that some particular society owns them or has a privileged claim with respect to them. And unless the second proposition can be established, there would seem no grounds for favoring a utilitarian dispensation of such assets and endowments rather than just letting them lie where they fall. Right. And then he goes on, without some conception of a wider subject of possession, such yep. as Rawls' notion of the common asset, seems also to also require, there would seem no obvious reason why these assets should be made to serve general social ends rather
3: than individual ones. It's on that point that it's not clear to me that Sandel is siding with Nozick, except for pointing it out, the impoverishment of Rawls' position to do the work that he wants to do. But I, mm-hmm. I suspect that Sandel wants to have it do more work right
1: he wants that greater subject
3: yeah but then i can see why wes would complain that he doesn't
1: ever
0: say what this means he wants this ontological foundation to justify redistribution right or maybe it's ontological maybe it's not but this why it sounds ontological when you say wider subject of possession he wants to ground it in some way that it doesn't seem grounded in realms
1: right if you say fundamentally we all have certain inalienable rights And that's the sort of the starting point to everything. Then that's going to be different than, okay, we're a society working together to make things as good as possible for everybody,
0: right? Those are in conflict. And then you have to decide where the boundary of rights lies. And that's a very tricky question, but it doesn't mean you don't have the right to ever tax me because that's, that's what I would claim. I would claim, yes, as a society, we can use you as a means to an end. That's not inconsistent with Kant or rights or any of that stuff. We use people as a means to an end all the time, but we just also have to treat them as ends. There are certain fundamental rights that we can't violate. doesn't mean we can't tax you.
2: This is my takeaway of specifically chapter four. He's trying to attribute to Rawls an impoverished notion of the self and impoverished in a specific way Dylan referenced earlier, namely that it's not self-reflective and it isn't actually making choices It's critical to Rawls's project that justice is the framework under which this deontological or disembodied self has the freedom to self-determine. And Mm self-determination here means to make choices about what it wants to do, what it wants to have, etc. And amongst other things, what Sandel is saying is that in order to make a choice about what it is that you actually want or something that you actually want to do, you have to have some measure of the ability to self-reflect and that this notion of the self that is required to create the framework of justice is too impoverished to have self-reflection. So, it's not even capable of exercising choice. So, if your goal is to create the framework of justice in order to empower individuals to self-determine, it actually is contradictory because the selves that exist in that framework of justice aren't even rich enough to self-determine in the way that you want them to.
0: Yeah, I think you've gotten us into the other sections of this chapter, which is good. The three sections of community and then the agency and the role of reflection.
2: If we think about the project of the book that Sandel says is pinning this notion of the self onto Rawls and then spending all the time elaborating on it, it's because... It has to be because he wanted to make a point about – I mean, he could just as easily not spend all this time criticizing Rawls and said something like, in order for people to self-determine in a way that we think is healthy and important in democratic societies such as ours, you have to have the ability to self-reflect and you have to be able to make active choices. And that is not just an active choice about – what you prefer amongst options that are given to you, but you have to actually be able to assess and create options for choices yourself as well. That's a critical point that is not as emphasized as much at the end. And so really what Sandel wants to do is talk about what kind of self is needed for a classical liberal society. And I think he wants to do it outside of the framework of this conversation that Ultimately, I guess he gets cast as a key player in. But if I can bring it back to something that he mentions early on that I was a little bit confused about, maybe you guys can help me clarify it. This is page two and three. The contrast might also be drawn in terms of two different senses of deontology. In its moral sense, deontology opposes consequentialism. In its foundational sense, deontology opposes teleology. It describes a form of justification in which first principles are derived in a way that does not presuppose any final human purpose or ends. That was a really important point to me because later on, he's talking about Rawls and he says, The voluntarist notion of agency is thus a key ingredient in Rawls's conception and plays a central role in the deontological ethic as a whole. Thus, a moral person is a subject with ends he has chosen and his fundamental preferences for conditions that enable him to frame a mode of life that expresses his nature as a free and equal rational being as fully as circumstances permit. And I guess I'm confused about the fact that we know that if Sandel buys into virtue ethics and is going to make an appeal back to Aristotelianism, which he may not do explicitly in this book, but it comes up in other contexts around him, that He's opposed to deontology, not just because it has this impoverished notion of the self, but also because it stands opposed to teleology. And he has some sense that any rich conception of virtuousness has an association with teleology. And yet, I felt like in this part of the book, it was saying that, in fact, Rawls is relying on a notion of teleology. Or am I confusing the idea that we each can pursue our own notion of the good or our own notion of the good life is not the same thing as there being a teleological end. Yeah,
0: teleology as opposed to us simply freely willing what end we want to choose. Teleology says those ends are built in to ourselves already, and we don't simply choose them, we discover them. He talks about cognition and discovery, right, through reflection. Mm-hmm. That's a difference, you know, as he sees it.
2: Yeah, and I, but I think what he was also saying was, in the sense in which I said earlier that Sandel criticizes Rawls for saying that this impoverished notion of the self doesn't really have choice. It only selects amongst offered options. Somehow it was tied into this notion that maybe either teleology was necessary to remedy that situation to some extent or that it's sort of already there and that Rawls is actually presupposing it, even though it sounds like he's talking about choice, you don't really have choice in the radical sense. Well, he's saying you don't really have
0: any meaningful choice because it can't be based on anything. It's just arbitrary. And this is, you know, that's kind of a classical criticism of free will anyway. You know, if the idea is it has to be completely free and therefore separate from our identities and from our desires and motivations, then it's arbitrary. But he's still claiming that the Rawlsian self is this self in which ends are supposed to be freely chosen. He's just saying that's a meaningless sort of choice.
1: Yeah, he's saying that in considering these three possible foundations for morality, if you think consequentialism, utilitarianism is foundational, that's just a non-starter, right? Bentham says pain and pleasure are our masters, right? That's the ultimate foundation for morality. But then immediately say, well, but why would that make obeying the dictates of pain and pleasure right? You need a teleological account. That says something like we're built in with this mechanism that pulls us toward certain things with pleasure and away from certain things with pain, and so it's our good to pursue the things that give us pleasure well, that's a teleological account right there, <laughs> so we're not stopping with consequences we're going to teleology, and he's saying the same thing with deontology that you might think that you're saying we're ultimately free beings and can just choose. Out of the air. But for the choice to be meaningful, like you were saying, it has to resolve on something actually choosing the good for us, right? But the good has to be something that's objective to us, but yet bound to us. And that's, again, a conception of teleology. Yeah.
0: And this is where, I mean, people have accused Kant of having a hidden teleology. It's kind of a bizarre way that Sandel represents this because it's not simply that we choose out of thin air. And also the Kantian conception of free will here has to do with these very general moral considerations, right? Whether or not it's right to kill someone or something like that, not whether or not I'm going to become a doctor or other thickly constituted decisions. So I don't freely choose the end as in freely choose whether or not it's right to kill someone that's legislated by my will, but that doesn't mean I individually choose that. I mean, if I'm acting autonomously, then I would choose not to kill, and I would choose to do the moral thing in every case. But what is the moral thing is not something chosen by me. So in that sense, it is built in. The morality is we are constrained, and that's why you could accuse Kant of having a hidden... Teleology. But that's not right. that's that not what Sandoval is doing here.
1: We are reasonable beings. Like that is exactly. the that is type a, of being that we are, and that yeah. <laughs> entails it's a certain There's very, a teleology. It's yeah. And that's similar to
0: Aristotle's approach. Our rationality is the teleologically relevant thing. So yeah.
1: It's funny, I mean, do we all agree actually with this oh everything leads to teleology? We can't avoid t- teleology to me there's a reason that it was abandoned in scientific explanations and like there's something deeply troubling about theological notions and I know we can't pursue this here because this is not something sent hell gives us but really I don't think it's sufficient to just say eh, well you end up referring to something metaphysical and and that there's an appropriateness that is somehow bound into that you know I'm a reasoning type of being and so it is appropriate for me to do this that somehow the is and the ought just come to us bound together I don't think that's non problematic I think that <laughs> right
0: Deontology and teleology are both highly problematic, (laughs) but they are the best. They are the best
3: alternatives. Even in scientific thinking, there's always at least a weak form of teleology going on, right? I'm just even thinking of like a mechanical example of like the air in the room wants to get distributed equally throughout the whole room, right? Or the electron wants to get repelled, wants to be away from other negatively charged objects. Except not really.
1: No, well, look. And, and wants doesn't even capture teleology, right? Because it's <laughs> that I'm a type of being that regardless of my wants, there is some good for me. Like, is there any parallel to that when you're talking about physical systems?
0: I don't think so. Yeah, I think there is because there's. we could say something is, well, there might be because we can talk about order. We can talk about yes. um, complexity yeah. and those sorts yes. of concepts. Yeah.
3: And an example about what's good for me is going to come better from something like evolution and evolutionary arguments. But I guess maybe I just haven't had enough philosophical education to think of teleology as only involving what's good for me as opposed to my ends right? Not just desires, but what it is, where it is I'm directed towards, right? And so, when I use the language of wanting of the electron, you know, the flower wants to reach to the sky and the electron wants to run away from negative charges, what I mean to be using is not the wants and desires of them as objects that are exercising their wills but as objects that have a constituted activity and some end involved in that as west pointed out something like going towards minimum energy states why does the excited atom radiate light because it wants to be at a lower energy state right stuff like that
0: i do think that though there has to be some normative element because it can't just be like this thing tends towards this That doesn't capture teleology. And certainly just saying the subjective, I want this or something wants this. It can't just be subjective desire because teleology is designed to go beyond that. Because it seems ultimately like morality has to refer to subjective states. And it's where teleology is counterintuitive. And it's where Kant's solution is kind of ingenious because he's saying, well, yes, it does come from... A subjective state, but it's legislated behind the scenes, kind of like the Wizard of Oz. So he's giving us a very interesting solution to that problem because the question is how we ground something objectively but honor its seeming subjectivity.
2: I think I understand and I think I agree with you. What I felt like came out of that, the reason I brought up that notion of teleology was I felt like what Sandel was saying was something to the effect of this that Rawls has an implicit teleological notion in his concept, namely that. Everybody should strive towards fulfillment or the good in some way, except that in Rawls's conception, individuals decide what there is no overarching moral construct or communally constructed notion of what's good for human beings. We all self-create our own individual notion, but the boundaries are set by this idea of justice, which provides a very, very light framework for what constitutes the good. Namely, your notion of the good can't be that you dominate and destroy and kill other people and impinge upon other people's good and other sorts of things. And I think what Sandel is saying is that you can't construct, you can't even nominally or surreptitiously bring in a notion of everybody pursuing the good without the good. You need to get away from justice and into the moral realm, which for him And he thinks also for Rawls is the communal realm and that that's where the actual work of figuring out what constitutes the good and what's permitted and what's not permitted needs to be done. more importantly, that that's prior to the notion of justice, which he only addresses explicitly at least in the sections we read towards the very end of the book in the conclusion when he says, hey, you know what? There are ways that people can interact in a communal setting where justice doesn't even come close to being the first virtue. And yeah. it's in fact, maybe not even required. And I think that's a way of him saying that justice as a virtue and justice as a framework, justice as a construct, just isn't rich enough to describe the ways in which people interact yeah.
0: The problem is, though, it's not trying to do that. They're just trying to say what's necessary for a state. They're not trying to give you the whole self. That's the really odd thing about this, is that whether you call it the transcendental subject or the Rawlsian unencumbered self, they're not Rawls and Kant's complete theory of the self. They're explicitly a minor part of the self. Most of our self is what we call the empirical self, the thickly constituted self, the full Sandelian self. And most of what's morally important to us in life will surround, it's not going to be, should I kill or not kill? It's going to be things that have to do with more positive Virtues and commitments and communal attachments and things like that, but that is all perfectly consistent with Rawls and Kant. They're not saying that you know we obliterate all of that part of the self. they're just saying that when we set up a state, we can't base a state on those aspects of the self and so then the real question is, do you set up a state as a liberal society which takes only the minimalistic conception of the self into account, or do you have a thicker conception of the self, and if so, what does that imply for the state? Because again, the worry is, if you get too thick, you get totalitarianism. And Sandel doesn't give us any details on what it means for setting up a state.
2: Yeah.
3: He doesn't give us any details, but what he does say is that without that communally constituted self is you just don't have politics. The primacy of justice isn't enough to give us politics. Working out rationally and reflectively their differences is what Gives us the robust society that we expect, and we are pointing towards with liberalism. And his right. criticism is that at least deontological liberalism isn't sufficient to give us that thing that we're even aiming at.
0: But nothing is sufficient to give you. You can't legislate that. You can't institute that. Not in a pluralistic. And first of all, that's completely consistent with a liberal society, right? Community and politics and all these ideals are consistent with a liberal society. So then the critique becomes that well in a liberal society these things can't really flourish or because it needs to be encouraged at a political level or something like that but again what are the details because it's completely consistent with liberalism to say we ought to encourage community and we ought to encourage rational reflection political engagement but you can't institute these things as laws you can't force these things on people and you can't force any one conception of the good life on people
2: No, you can't, but you can say that if the liberal society depends on having rationally strong and self-constituted individuals that can self-determine, the way that you get that kind of individual is through communal building and the moral community and all that sort of thing, and that if your focus is on building the liberal society and strengthening the notion of politics and the political system, the place to start is not an abstract conception of justice, but is to start at a robust conception of the individual and the self.
0: How would you guys actually, if you really take this position seriously, how would you change a liberal government to make it honor community and all these considerations and the, and the thickly constituted self? More seriously, what practically could we do?
1: So he gives an example that we will spend our next episode asking him about and elaborating with him that he seems to think that the liberal conception is committed to unfettered economic views of things. Economics is supposed to capture, you know, it's just people providing others with what they prefer. And so if they don't prefer that, then they won't pursue that and it won't pay and people won't do it. And he thinks this leads to a debasement of many parts of our lives and that we, if we reflect as a society on our intuitions about this, we can, as a political body, agree that, yeah, even if individuals want to, you know, so advertising is one of the examples that he gives that that if people are willing to pay for advertising on every given surface – and the people who own those surfaces are willing to rent out that space to advertisers, then we should have advertising everywhere. But yet, all these individual preferences, individual good deals, lead to an overall situation that we would all agree is horrible. That every single place that we look, there's advertising here, advertising there. So he thinks that we have to go beyond what he thinks is inherent in this liberal position to institute not very specifically in terms of a fully constituted notion of the teleology of the individual and what is our good, but there are a lot of specific principles that we could agree to that it is in our good as human beings not to have advertising everywhere we look.
0: There's just one example. That that says nothing about what
3: the government could do about that. Sure, the government can provide constraints regarding, in this case, where advertising would be.
0: Yeah. Beyond that obvious step, which is already in place. So then the objection is not that there isn't the possibility of legislating that stuff. There is. It's just that we don't. There's not some society where it can just be written into the foundation of society. How are you going to regulate advertising? No.
3: Wes, I think the point is that these kinds of things aren't necessarily part of legislation, but they're part of the political conversation of community and that the primacy of justice means that discussion of values and goods as possibly of them trumping justice becomes problematic. That questions of fairness and a peculiar kind of equality become the name of the game and has the force to trump all questions of good. If you say they trump justice, you
0: have to put your money where your mouth is. Trumping justice means instituting a certain conception of the good instead of a liberal society in which no conception of the good or a very thin conception is instituted and we allow pluralism. You can't just say I want to have a conversation because that's completely consistent with liberalism to say we want more community. That has nothing to do with liberalism to say we want more of that in society. Liberalism is about how you set up a state. It's not about whether or not I want to have more community. So the question is whether how you could institute that in a state.
2: I don't think Sandel is suggesting that the solution is in the state necessarily. The fact that you say, "Okay, we're not going to have a primacy of justice. We're going to seek to create robust individuals that can participate in a polity," doesn't necessarily mean that the burden for doing that is on the state. And I think Sandel is oftentimes positioned not so much as a libertarian or on somehow on the conservative or reactionary or Friedman von Mises side of the house. But there's nothing in what he describes. That suggests that it's the responsibility of the state to make that happen. I think what he is saying in the sense of Rawls is that if you do see everything as a question of justice and you look for a statist mechanism to enforce that, you're ultimately going to have an impoverished set of individuals, an impoverished notion of the individual that you're going to have to contend with.
0: If it's not about what you're going to do at the state level, then why are you talking about Rawls' theory of justice, which is all about how to set up a state?
2: His point
3: is that it's not just about setting up a state.
0: And you can say, okay, Rawls is encouraging a certain ethos, that if you set up a state a certain way, that necessarily means that the ethos of liberalism is endorsed at every level. If we believe that justice is primary, and rights are primary when setting up a state, and that we consider only the minimalistic version of individuals, then that's the ethos that permeates all moral considerations within the society. But that's total bullshit your choice of a system for setting up a state is not your choice of a thoroughgoing ethos for your own individual life, for your community, anything like that. Those two are separate. And the whole point of them being separate is to prevent tyranny and totalitarianism. I'd like to
1: bring in one more example, the hate speech issue that I think has certain parallels to the advertising one. So the idea is that if the government is being neutral between different parties, then you have to As we've said, oh, I believe in freedom of speech. Okay, then the Nazis have to be able to speak as well. They have to be able to march in Skokie, where all the Holocaust survivors live. And to Sandel, this betrays a mistake that liberalism has made. Really, we can just acknowledge that hate speech
0: is bad. Well, everyone calls the speech they don't like hate speech and everyone calls the freedom fighters they don't like terrorists and so on and so forth.
1: Really? You're gonna stick to that, that there is no way, even though the Nazis speech is based on hate, that I could
0: call that hate speech in a way that other speech is not? <laughs> Because many people would call my Alec Baldwin article hate speech. And in Europe, there are laws about if my article is considered demeaning to homosexuals, I can be arrested. So, yes, people have different tolerances and they can consider anything they like hate. Who's going to be the arbiter of that? What committee are you going to set up to say one thing is hate speech and one thing is not? People have to be able to express their views, any sort of views they want in a society. I'm firmly on the side of radical free speech.
1: Liberal. in the Rawlsian sense.
0: Yeah. uh, the Classical liberal in that sense. Yeah. And there are, there are constraints. That's not to say there aren't constraints to free speech, you know, free speech that's inciting violence, shouting fire. And there are lots of things written in the law about constraints on free speech. And so for instance, here's a case where I don't think free speech is applicable. There are certain kinds of things which are actually intimidation. So letting Nazis march for Jewish community, arguably that's just intimidation or putting anti-Muslim ads on buses in a society essentially saying that Muslims are subhuman that is actually trying to intimidate certain class of society intimidation that's already well built into the law so i'm not saying that there are no limits on the on free speech but those are liberal limits they have to do with harming people or threatening to harm people or Preventing them from living their lives in security. And not in the, as Sandel says,
1: this is from the introduction, there's also difference in the moral worth of the communities whose integrity was at stake. The shared memories of the Holocaust survivors deserve a moral deference. The solidarity of the segregationalist does not. Moral discrimination such as these are consistent with common sense, but at odds with the version of liberalism that asserts the priority of right over the good and the version of communitarianism. The rests
0: for the case of rights and communal values alone. I'm saying that's the wrong standard because a civil rights march that makes white people uncomfortable, that's about a recovery of rights in the first place. And the discomfort of, say, some white community with a civil rights march, that's not the discomfort of I'm being intimidated by people who are going to take away my ability to freely live in the society. That's just being uncomfortable with... These people may actually gain their rights. So you can give a completely liberal foundation to these things, is all I'm saying. You don't have to resort to, hey, I'm going to be the arbiter of which views are better than other views.
3: Wes, I guess what I'm not understanding is how those are questions of justice and not questions of value, which I take to be Sandel's whole point. The way in which you've just articulated all those elements that are perfectly consistent with liberalism seem to be questions of value that would be argued out in politics and that in the case of which interests you should weigh and the reasons for that, saying that they're perfectly consistent with liberalism may be right, but then they do seem like questions of value, not questions of justice. Let me
0: illustrate whether or not questions of value. The illustration is this. If they were questions of value, it would be entirely the content of my speech Which determined whether I could speak. It wouldn't be contexts like whether I'm writing a book or marching through a certain neighborhood. So, the reason for rejecting the march through a certain neighborhood is that it's a certain kind of, let's say, speech act. It's really intimidation. But that doesn't mean that I can't write a pro Nazi book or a Holocaust denial book or any number of atrocious things because the context there is different. So, the content is the same in some sense but it's really about a difference in context. And the context comes down to people's rights. If I'm intimidating people and threatening them, which is essentially what I'm really doing with a Nazi march through a Jewish neighborhood, making them feel like some past horrible harm may come to revisit them again with the ascendancy of a certain group. Then that's about intimidation and threat and essentially violation of people's rights. It's not about I'm going to be the arbiter of whether nazism in general is an ideology that will be tolerated but it is tolerated in the united states but not as much in europe where they have stronger laws about that so you can be arrested you know for writing a holocaust denial book in certain countries
1: all right well you've given us a nice agenda for talking to sandale himself who has closings for this phase
2: of the conversation for this book i do let me start with the positive Sandel writes in a sufficiently dense and yet very clear and understandable prose. After we have criticized on the border of lampooning the prose stylings of Nozick and Rawls, amongst others in this year of the 2014, having just read Sandel's other book, The Moral Limits of Markets, or What Money Can't Buy, I think is what the title is, which is a popular book. This one, I think, demonstrates that he's capable of more serious and extended argumentation in yet what is still a very precise and explainable style. So, it obviously can be done. Now, it is a strange book in that you expect to get some kind of traditional or, I would say, Rawlsian-defined criticism of Rawls. In other words, you know, you let Rawls lay the playing field and then, you know, many people have gone into and talked about how the original position is empty if you really consider about abstracting from all of these things and what's presupposed. There's a lot of ways to undermine Rawls's own logic from within it. This tact that Sandel takes of criticizing a notion of the self that he impugns to Rawls, where Rawls, never that i can recall in the book although i didn't read all 793 pages of it <laughs> lays out an explicit is an interesting rhetorical tact which i think plays itself out at the very end of the book where sandel essentially betrays his true intent in the last let's say 10 or 15 pages <laughs> of the book which is he wants to talk about character He wants to talk about a self with some sort of meaningful identity that's built out of self-reflection and is constituted by real lived experience in a way that he feels Rawls doesn't. And I wonder if he couldn't have found a way to criticize Rawls without going through this extended kind of tortured at points attribution of the concept of self. And ultimately, I'm sympathetic to this project. We've had many conversations, I think. All of us, regardless of what our stances, think that there's something meaningful to be said about education and acculturation and learned virtue and all that, but I think I'm ultimately left with a sense of dissatisfaction in that I want to read the book that comes after this where he, you know, I want to read his version of Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue or maybe... After Virtue was, in some sense, the bookend to this particular criticism, where Sandel is just redirecting back to that point, saying that the discussion between libertarianism and liberalism and communalism is ultimately not productive in a way that can't be more meaningfully satisfied by a discussion such as McIntyre's. I think the book that he was aiming
1: at is by Charles Taylor, who he refers to several times. I have a big book called Sources of the Self by him. So I think that's at least what this makes me want to read next, not another book by Sandel, which I think would say more of the same of what we're already seeing here.
2: I agree with that. I believe Taylor was at Harvard and was his mentor.
3: Hmm. All right. I'm very sympathetic with the criticism that Sandel makes. And I would echo Seth's remark about how readable the book is, especially for a typical academic book. So, if you were looking to read something like that, that's a good example. The weakness is something along the lines of what West has pointed out. Well, what do we do with the criticism? Even if we take seriously the criticism that our politics needs more than the primacy of justice, how do we make that happen and what structure of our government would allow for that? And is it really the case that a broadly liberal form of government doesn't already make that a possibility. If it is the case that the kind of conception that Sandel has in mind is available in a broadly liberal democratic society, then that makes his criticism focusing on deontological liberalism maybe a little bit too picky. It might highlight a kind of danger or weakness inherent in liberalism that needs to be shorn up in different ways, but maybe it's not... Fatal, especially in the absence of what else do you do? The thing that Sandel's criticism reminds me most of is someone like de Tocqueville and the argument that there's more than the structure of our institutions and more than a dedication to liberal democracy that accounts for the success of particular instances of liberal democracy and that the actual values of the community are explicitly important to the success of those communities. And that it's not a simple slippery slope towards totalitarianism to have values discussions be part of that liberal democracy. And it's not a simple either or question of whose values trump whose. And to the extent that it is, some level that's what politics is trying to sort out and questions of justice are also trying to sort out. So there's my closing.
1: I know a lot of the uh, disagreement here has been just how well does he represent Rawls? How well does he represent Kant? He doesn't even talk about Kant for that long. I mean, he has one little section on Kant and then moves on. I don't think it's any longer than like the section on Dworkin and Affirmative Action. It's a matter of less than 20 pages, certainly. As far as his coverage of Rawls, I can at least say this is just chock full of Rawls quotes. (laughs) And a real attempt in a very substantial section to just be talking from Rawls perspective and make sense out of Rawls. And to me, you know, if you can look at that really obvious effort to be clear as a secondary source and still say, oh, he just gets Rawls completely wrong. I'm a little suspicious of that. That's certainly not how I read it. I would have to look back at Rawls and reflect more on Rawls specific arguments. but. I feel like he was focusing on such a small section of Rawls that Rawls was just wrong right in the get go in considering the right having priority over the good and thinking that you can give a deontological explanation that doesn't ultimately require some metaphysical grounding to it. It seemed that Sandel's aims were modest enough that I'm pretty confident that he got Rawls right on the step that he was trying to describe and gave
3: a perfectly coherent, cogent response to it that I found very well motivated. I guess I would underline that his presentation of Rawls in Rawls' own terms seemed right. And where the argument would be is about what the consequences of Rawls' position are. And you also might argue whether or not Rawls sufficiently responds to them. But in, in terms of just describing and articulating the original position and stuff like that sounded right to me. You know, it spends the time talking about Rawls and then gives a whole objection to Rawls and then
1: says, well, here's how Rawls could respond and then spends several pages. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, how much more charitable can you try to be here?
0: Yeah. I think uh, there's a lot of detailed representation of Rawls's account and attempt at giving objections. Unfortunately, I don't think he takes on the strongest objections, and there's one large glaring inaccuracy, which is this conflation of the total conception of the self for Rawls or Kant with the transcendental ego, as if the empirical ego doesn't even exist. So that's my broad objection. That's what made me angry reading this book, is that When Rawls and Kant say, well, we just want to think about this minimalistic conception of the subject when we're thinking about justice, because everyone has to get along. We can't use the robust conception of the subject. That doesn't mean that robust conception doesn't exist. It's just that instituting it at the level of bare bones morality or at the level of the state doesn't make any sense. So that's why, again, I see Sandel's conceptions of community and all the rest of it and a robustly constituted self as completely consistent with Kant's and Rawls' position and with liberalism. So again, the question is what do we do when we're setting up a society? There should be real consequences to this. If we're going to use not such a minimalistic conception of the self, what conception of the self do we use precisely? And what does that mean for setting up a society? Most of us think that a pluralistic society that tolerates lots of different conceptions of the good is really, really important so how do you do that if, as it you know, seems to be hinted, we want a more robust conception of the good instituted when we're setting up a state? So that's my closing.
1: Well, I think we're all like light and we're like the particles and the waves in the light and we're together <laughs> in the light and then the law should be like that.
0: That's my position. Exactly. <laughs>
1: Next time I already said what we're doing next time. We're talking to Sandell about what money can't buy the moral limits of markets from two thousand twelve. We're supported by your donations. Go to partialexamlife.com to make a contribution. Big donors since last time have included Mark Novalis, Shauna Blake, Joshua Stein, Dennis McDonald, Herb Harris, Mark Burak, Gareth Jordan, Andrew Miles, Angela McLaughlin, Rodrigo Vanegas, Jason Stable, Daniel Brockman, Dave Seaver, Alicia Johnson, Keith Grennan, Ken Daly, Michael Afferbach, and Adam Bulch. Thanks also to these smaller donors, including the many who are on a newly or continued basis signed up for our $5 a month citizen site. And I don't say this enough, really, really, really thank you to the people that use our Amazon link to buy their stuff. We had a crazy month this time with... I think multiple like whole computer systems bought. So we get like 6% of that doesn't cost you anything additional. You just have to go to our website, look for any of the Amazon links on there and then go through and whether it's buying your philosophy books or buying all of your back to school, your Christmas presents, all of your furniture, your kidney transplants, we will get a cut <clears throat> of that and we will never know who you are. We can't thank you personally. So this is my thanking you we have a twitter account we have a facebook page we have the awesome blog which is uh looks new and awesome thanks to dylan and his brother josh that just completely upgraded the site and made it look so much better
2: and faster too by the way
1: yes thanks everybody for a spirited discussion thank you thank you thank you good
0: night good night good night good night
1: As it's planning to stay with me Except
0: you Everything will stay Except you Wonderful
1: I believe that the world is swell and there's
0: good in everyone. And I know that it's one of those times when I have to step back and stop consciousness here, cause I just can't believe it.